I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Jonestown, Guyana. Guyana is a country on the northern mainland of South America. It is bordered by the Atlantic Ocean to the north, Brazil to the south, Venezuela to the west, and Suriname from the east. The name means land of many waters, and it is the only country in South America in which English is the official language due to its Dutch and British colonial past. It gained its independence from Britain in 1966. The country has an abundance of natural resources, such as rainforests, sugarcane fields, rice fields, and gold reserves. Despite these rich reserves, it remains one of the poorest countries in South America, with 35% of its 800,000 residents living below the poverty line. However, Guyana's economy has been undergoing a transformation since the discovery of crude oil in 2015 and the introduction of commercial drilling in 2019, with the country being one of the only economies to grow despite the pandemic beginning in 2020. Due to Guyana's small population and its incredibly large oil reserves, the country is on course to become one of the largest per capita oil producers in the world by 2030. But in 1978, people were flocking to Guyana in search of a better life, not realizing they were following the whim of a madman. For many, it would be the last mistake they ever made. James Warren Jones, who went by Jim, was born on May 13, 1931, in the rural area of Crete, Indiana, which is located near the Ohio border. His father, James Thurman Jones, who was 47 years old when Jim was born, was a veteran of World War I and lived on disability payments after being a victim of mustard gas attacks during the war. His mother, Lynetta, was considered by the residents of Crete to be extremely unladylike, known for smoking, drinking, and shouting her opinions at anyone who passed by. So what's wrong with that? <laughs> I resemble that remark. <laughs> Since the disability pension was not enough to support the family, Jim's father, James, worked on local road repair projects whenever the opportunity came up. As a result, James was often away for work, causing resentment and tension between him and his wife, Lynetta. His wife was already ostracized from her neighbors because of the behavior we just spoke about, but she felt even more isolated with her husband's frequent absences. Shortly after Jim was born, his father's health further deteriorated. Mustard gas cath causes severe breathing problems, and he was not able to work. Now, this was at the height of the Great Depression, so the family savings began to dwindle, and they were eventually evicted from their family farm. Now, some of James's relatives took the family in, so they moved to the town of Lynn, Indiana, which was just a few miles down the road. But there, they lived in a dilapidated shack that had no plumbing or electricity. At the age of six, Jim began the first grade. His father was in and out of the hospital a lot, and to make money, his mother began working at a factory. As a result, his parents were not home very much, and he became a latchkey kid decades before that phrase was commonplace. He enjoyed his newfound freedom by roaming the streets before and after school, and he didn't have any friends at school, so he spent most of his time reading. Because Jim spent many afternoons wandering the streets, many of the elderly widows in the area felt bad for him. And one little old lady invited him in for a piece of cake and was shocked by how polite he was. 
because his parents were considered like the trash of the neighborhood. But here they have this polite little boy. Anyway, this lady was the first person who introduced Jim to the concept of religion. So his dad had a Baptist and a Quaker background, and his mother had doubts about what she called a sky god. So Jim had never been raised in any religion whatsoever. So Jim began attending the Church of the Nazarene with this old lady, the widow, and he paid attention to every word the pastor said. Kath, apparently he was fascinated by this, and he was excellent at memorizing Bible verses. So Kath, what I understand is that Jim would attend services for one certain religion. So Mm -hmm. instead of the Church of the Nazarene, he started attending Methodist services. Right. He would throw himself into the Methodist religion, get disillusioned by it, and then he'd move to the next one, say he's now Presbyterian. And he'd do the same thing with the Presbyterians. He'd get disillusioned. Then he goes to the Lutherans. Yeah, I read the same thing, Kath. And I also read that he would frequently play make-believe by giving sermons in the forest, pretending that he was the pastor. To all the animals. Exactly. So even before this sermons in the forest thing, the town thought Jim was a bit strange because he had this obsession with religion. And then apparently soon he developed an obsession with death. Jim would meander throughout the town searching for roadkill and then give the animal a funeral service. And apparently Jim was much more emotional than other children and was sort of like known as a crybaby. But conversely, he was also a little thief, like he would steal sweets from local shops and he would swear and things like that. At the age of nine, Jim claimed that he had special powers. He stood at the edge of a roof one time and shouted to everyone to look at him because he believed he could fly. And of course, he jumped off the roof and promptly broke his arm. He needs to make sure there's a (laughs) swimming pool below him next time. Exactly. We used to jump off the roof into my parents' pool, but none of us were foolish enough to try to hit the cement. (laughs) And and off the awning in our backyard into the pool. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. My brother would also like ride his bike off the roof and into the pool. But uh, yeah, you know, like good time was had by all on the roof, you know. Mm -hmm. And no arms were broken. No arms were broken. (laughs) When Jim was 10, America entered World War II. All the other school children would pretend to be American soldiers defending the country, but Jim always wanted to imitate the Nazis. He especially liked to pretend being Adolf Hitler, someone he grew obsessed with. And as he grew into a teenager, he became obsessed with sex. Now, Kath, I thought this was interesting because I think most boys are when they're young, but they internalize it. But this guy externalized it, meaning he thought he was an expert and he would sit on his porch teaching other children about the details. And you know, these poor kids were like, somebody put sticks in my ears immediately. (laughs) I'm never going to do what he is telling me is true. Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, so he set himself apart in high school by wearing his Sunday best every day to school as compared to the casual wear that the other children opted for. In 1945, when Jim was 14, his mother and father divorced. His father was a raging alcoholic and had suffered a stroke. So his body was beginning to fail and he was no longer able to speak. His mom, Lynetta, had actually already moved on from her husband and was dating another man. But Kath, they actually phrased it that she had already taken up with another man. Mm. Jim moved with his mother to Richmond, Indiana. He graduated from high school in 1948 with honors while also working a full-time job. After high school, he worked as an orderly at Reed Memorial Hospital and fell in love with Marceline Baldwin. She was a nurse at the hospital who was four years older than him. The newlyweds moved to Indianapolis, where Marceline picked up a job as a nurse. So while there, Jim continued his education through night classes, continuing to work at a hospital, and he eventually received a degree in secondary education from Butler University. Now, in the 1950s, the Ku Klux Klan had a strong presence in Indianapolis, 
and Jim became obsessed with the importance of racial integration. In 1952, Jim became the student pastor at Somerset Methodist Church. He created a youth center for children of all faiths, and he was excellent at appealing to crowds. Kath, I think his sermons in the forest helped because he apparently made his sermons more akin to performances. And he was maybe, what, 22 at this time? He was really young when yeah, he, he took was, on this role. Exactly. After this, Jim became renowned in multiple states for his fiery preaching. Since this was a time of racial unrest in our country, Jim encouraged Black members of the audience to sit in the front of the church in order to contest the societal racial norms at the time. Jim's deviation from this norm caused tension and problems within the church community. So in response, Jim set up his own community church so that he could make his own rules. He named it Wings of Deliverance and in 1956 renamed it to the People's Temple Full Gospel Church. The People's Temple joined the Disciples of Christ in 1960 and Jones was ordained as a reverend in 1964. At his new church, Jones's first priority was creating an environment that was truly racially integrated. Because of this, he was appointed in 1960 by Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell to serve on the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission. And then he turned this role into an opportunity to appear on the radio and on TV shows. While he preached racial equality, his own family reflected these beliefs. Jim and his wife Marceline first adopted a little girl who was part Native American, then three Korean children, and in 1961, were the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child. They also had one biological son named Stephen Gandhi and later adopted a white son. Jim called his children his rainbow family. In 1961, Jim announced that he had a dream in which it was revealed to him that there would be a nuclear holocaust that would result in the entire Midwest being destroyed. This type of thinking, of course, was not entirely unusual at the time. After the atomic bomb was first used in 1945 during World War II, many believed the next war would be nuclear and destroy most of life on Earth. You know, this was a time of the Cold War. Right. A 1962 article researched the safest places to live to ensure that you survive the apocalypse. This took into consideration the expected prime targets like New York, Moscow, L.A., local fallout, wind direction, and worldwide fallout, etc., etc. The safest place in the United States was declared to be Eureka, California, based on the fact that it was upwind from every major target in the United States. The safest place in Europe was County Cork, Ireland, but the safest continent was South America, where seven of the nine safest cities were located. Jim Jones believed that the nuclear attack would occur on a specific date six years into the future, July 15, 1967, and he moved his family to Belo Horizonte, Brazil for two years in order to be safe. Which I actually think is weird, though, because this is 1961 and he believes there's going to be this big attack in 1967, but he only went to the safe place until 1963. What would he have done during Y2K? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, his resentment for the American governmental system festered during this time. He believed that America's prioritization of self-interest was leading to moral degradation. Almost two years after moving to Brazil in late 1963, Jim moved back to Indianapolis. And two years later, in 1965, he told the 140 members of his congregation who had been awaiting his return 
that the world was still going to end on July 15, 1967, and encouraged the congregation to pool their money to follow him to California. So he moved to Ukiah in Northern California, which was about 150 miles south of Eureka. During this time, Jim used his degree in secondary education to get a job as a high school teacher and spent his weekends preaching in rented churches. Jones eventually was able to establish his new church in this area, which continued to grow in popularity. There was even a shuttle service set up to transport parishioners from San Francisco to Redwood Valley for the services. In 1970, the Reverend Jim Jones took his dynamic ministry program on tour and preached at many different locations. And Kath, there were pamphlets that were passed around at stops that were part of this dynamic ministry tour, and they advertised Jones. Have you ever been to Coney Island? No. Okay, so Coney Island, in my mind before I went there, was like Disneyland, but, you know, down at Newport. Oh, see, I'm picturing like I eat a hot dog in the sand. That must be what Coney Island's like. But it has this boardwalk that has like the fun shows, you know, like see the bearded woman, see the tallest like man in the world. Like circus side acts? Yeah, exactly. Oh, how funny. It's a little scary too. I mean, right. honestly, I really didn't <laughs> like it. <laughs> but this is what this reminded me of because they were passing out these pamphlets that said, Jim Jones is incredible, miraculous, amazing, the most unique prophetic healing service you've ever witnessed. Jones was described as the minister of a 2.5 million member Christian church denomination, which was not true. It was more like a thousand. But he did serve as the vice president of the Legal Services Foundation of Mendocino County and was a member of the Juvenile Justice Commission. And in fact, Kath, the San Francisco Examiner had a weekly feature that they called Weekend in Churches, in which Jones was regularly mentioned for his work in the community. However, in 1972, just two years after the Dynamic Ministry program began, the San Francisco Examiner published several investigative articles that described the now 41-year-old Jones as a false messiah. Jones was now called the prophet by church members, and he had begun attracting huge crowds to his People's Temple Christian Disciples Church in Redwood Valley. Why? Because his followers said he could raise the dead. The Examiner's religion writer, the Reverend Lester Kinsolving, got a copy of the church's newsletter that described the resurrection of a Los Angeles man. And one director of the People's Temple, Timothy Stone, who cath his day job was the assistant prosecuting attorney of Mendocino County, mm-hmm. claimed that Jones had healed more than 40 persons who were near death. Stone said that when he first joined the church, he was skeptical, but since that time, he had seen Jones revive people who were stiff as a board, their tongues were hanging out, their skin was gray, or they had no vital signs. And Stone said Jones would go up to this dead person and say something like, I love you. I need you. And immediately, the vital signs would reappear. Poof. Just like magic. It's (laughs) amazing. It's amazing. Now, while Mr. Stone said that Jones was humble about his talents and did not like discussing them, the newsletter went into great detail publicizing his power to bring back the dead and additional powers that he had. Now, Kath, I actually don't know what those are, (laughs) but I'm wondering if it was like the one to jump off the roof and not break an arm. Exactly. And the other interesting thing, Kathy, about this article, the newsletter contained the name of a woman in Los Angeles who Jones brought back from the dead. And in this article, Kath, it detailed the exact price to the penny of all the books and other items this woman had purchased from the People's Temple. In my- oh, which is why she got to be healed. Exactly. She was brought back from the dead because she bought all their stuff. A little subliminal advertising, as a it were. Bit. 
As part of the San Francisco Examiner's investigation, they brought the People's Temple's finances into the spotlight. A review showed an income in 1972 of $396,000. And of course, I converted it to $2023. Right. Which reached the grand total of $2.85 million. And this is just one year of income, Kath. The church also had an endowment of $270,000, which in 2023 is $1.9 million. Not so shabby. Mm, You know what? I'd be okay with that. Mm -hmm. I'd be okay. I'm not greedy. Part of the money came from several holdings they had, a 40-acre children's home, three convalescent centers, as well as a heroin rehabilitation center. And Kathy, this is money that's now coming in from the county or insurance to pay for people to attend this. Right. The rest of the money came from donations to the church and sales of books and other items like this woman who was healed had purchased. Mm-hmm. So this article was just the beginning of unveiling some of the questionable actions of the People's Temple. A week after the initial article came out, the San Francisco Examiner ran another article about Timothy Stone, the assistant district attorney in Mendocino County, who also served as a board member and the attorney for the temple. After being contacted by the examiner, Mr. Stone confirmed reports that he had solemnized the marriage of an underage girl who joined the church. When asked what authority he had to officiate at the marriage, he said he met all the requirements of the civil code. But Mr. Stone could not cite what section exactly (laughs) gave him that ability. (laughs) He was surprised by the question, I'm guessing. Exactly. (laughs) Now, Kat, this issue arose after an underage girl's parents, who were former parishioners of Jim Jones when he was in Indianapolis, alleged that after their underage daughter was illegally married to another church member, the girl was forced to be placed on the county welfare rolls, and then she had to give her monthly check to the temple. Jones would travel to nearby states preaching, you know, much like the megachurches do with television, and he attracted large crowds of people wherever he went. It was written that during stops in Ohio, he would invite sick people forward during services for him to lay hands on them. And in one instance, Calf, a woman was ordered to leave the auditorium so that she could pass a cancer. <laughs> I'm not sure what that's referring to. <laughs> and I definitely want to be there for it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Indianapolis Star reporter Byron Wells was in attendance and reported that the woman returned a short time later with an attendant carrying a lump of something that Jones said was the woman's cancer. So Jones refused the reporter's request to have the alleged cancer analyzed because he said, no, 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 this tissue is going to be switched out and it's going to discredit me. Anyway, following a run of negative publicity that included accusations of physical and sexual abuse, mind control and forced drugging, Jones began making plans to move his congregation out of the United States. In fact, There were even court cases brought against Jones by family members of followers who wanted to extricate their loved ones from the church, but they were met with locked doors and no accessibility for the families, bringing Jim Jones further negative publicity. When Jones was first looking to move to Brazil in 1961, He toured several countries in South America to scout a possible site where he could relocate his people's temple. While most of the South American countries were acceptable, the country of Guyana had two major benefits the other countries did not. 
The first one was that at the time, Guyana was a British colony, which removed any potential problems with the language barrier. The second one was that Guyana was a socialist nation. So in the summer of 1973, Jones made the decision to relocate the People's Temple to Georgetown, Guyana, and purchased 27,000 acres of land just outside the city in an area called Matthew Ridge. And Kath, he then renamed the area Jonestown. Very, very unique. (laughs) (laughs) He's a creative one. Super original thinker. (laughs) Jones wanted a place that was free of American capitalism, where he and his followers could have what he called a, quote, truly egalitarian communist oasis. Now, Kath, by this point, he had rejected Christianity because Christianity did not prevent you from having free will and individualized wealth. So basically, he preferred people to pay the piper, which was the state, and then he acted on behalf of the state as the piper. Which is the difficulty about socialism. People are attracted to socialism because they think it is synonymous with humanitarianism. You know, all races, all ages, you know, all that kind of stuff. We're all equal. equal. Yeah. But the problem with socialism is that there's really no utopia. Because people envision, especially now, people envision like everybody has a middle class home and everybody has a nice car and everybody has whatever. That's not how socialism works. If history has taught us anything, that is not how socialism works. No, exactly. Because human nature gets in the way. If you want to like pay homage to the state and have them control your life, the question becomes, who gets to make the decisions for me? Who gets to have the power? Who gets to have the resources and the money? And what if I don't like what they're doing? Right. But in a socialist country, in a socialist society, the vast majority live at the very bottom of the poverty line, while the top one, two percent live like kings. And they get to make all the decisions. Exactly. And And that's why they live like kings. Complete nepotism. Yeah. You know, it's like you look at Mao, you look at Lenin, you look at Stalin. I mean, there's literally millions of people who have been sacrificed on the altar of socialism slash communism. And Kath, you and I both know that we're getting Patreon up soon, and we are going to interview a guy who was in a Soviet gulag for years. Which is going to be fascinating. Exactly. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. The first settlers of Jonestown arrived in March of 1974 to clear the jungle in order to begin construction. Fifty members of the church worked around the clock to establish a self-sustaining agricultural system and buildings. Jones promised his followers a modern-day Garden of Eden, and the workers were there to make sure his promise was kept. Here's what was interesting, Kathy, about how Jones was described. He was able to appeal to anybody for what they were searching for. If they needed a father, he was their father. If they were looking for religion, he was their Messiah. 
if somebody needed political direction, if somebody needed social direction, he made sure that he fit that role perfectly. He manipulated his charismatic personality, essentially, to accommodate his followers' needs. His son actually said, whatever message you needed was the message you would hear from him. And honestly, growing up in an alcoholic household with his mother, who was a little rough around the edges. Right. He had to read the temperature of every room he was in beginning at birth. Yeah, for sure. that allowed him to manipulate people. Mm Mm-hmm. As we said, by this time, Jones was no longer a believer in Christianity. He stated, those who remained drugged by the opiate of religion had to be brought to enlightenment, which he believed was socialism. And by this point, Jones's wealth totaled millions of dollars, but he did not share it with his followers, nor did they appear to know the extent of his wealth. Rather, they were working hours and hours a day to support an agrarian lifestyle. By 1977, Jonestown was completed. By September, there were already a thousand members of the People's Temple in Guyana, with only around 50 who decided to stay in the United States. Three quarters of the members in Guyana were black. Many were part of vulnerable populations, including Jewish people, Mexicans, and communists. Feeding, housing, and clothing all members of the congregation was a great task, and members of the community worked hard to accomplish it. However, Guyana was anything but a Garden of Eden. The soil was barren, fresh water was scarce, and the livable land was overcrowded because of the dense jungle surrounding them. Daily life in Jonestown was anything but idyllic. The compound struggled to feed and house the influx of church followers. Now, some of the members of the community who stayed back in the States began to fight back. Several women had borne Jones's children and sued him for custody as he had taken the kids with him to Guyana. He refused to give those children back to their mothers. However, some defectors who were able to flee Guyana spoke to the press. So, Kath, one of the things that's interesting is Grace Stone was married to Timothy Stone, and Timothy was Jim Jones's right-hand man and attorney and an ADA in Mendocino County and all that kind of stuff. She actually had a four-year-old at this time who went to Guyana with Jim Jones. And this is kind of a twisted story. Timothy Stone had signed an affidavit saying that Jim Jones was actually the father of their child. He apparently could not have a child. And so he asked Jim Jones to make a baby with his wife. So they have this child. The child's in Guyana. Grace sues for custody. A San Francisco court set a hearing to determine why she should not be given full custody. However, because the child was in Guyana, they instituted legal proceedings in Guyana. But Jim Jones filed a bunch of paperwork in Guyana saying she was an unfit parent and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, it went nowhere. So this was just one of many women who are trying to get their kids back from Guyana. It was even further complicated for her, though, because even though she was no longer with the church, her husband was. They were still married. Right. And Timothy Stone was with Jim Jones in Guyana with Timothy and Grace's son, John. Yeah. And it was so bizarre because, again, they were still married. She's fighting for custody. And her husband didn't join her in the fight until like a year later, I want to say. Exactly right. As we mentioned, defectors had spoken with the press. And in these conversations, the defectors detailed Jonestown's alleged human rights violations. This information began circling in the media, and the U.S. Congress actually received a lot of pressure to investigate the situation. 
We've got a thousand American citizens in Guyana, and there are potentially children there who are being kept from their parents or even people who want to leave and are being held against their will. According to the FBI, the allegations were serious. Jonestown sounded more like a slave camp than a religious center. There was talk of beatings, forced labor and imprisonments, as well as the use of drugs to control behavior, suspicious deaths, and even rehearsals for a mass suicide. In November of 1978, California Congressman Leo Ryan, whose congressional district encompassed the city of Ukiah, where the People's Temple was located, decided to visit Guyana to find out what was really happening for himself. At this point, Grace and Tim Stone were working together to get their now six-year-old son, John, back out of Jones's clutches, so they actually traveled with the congressman on this trip to Guyana. However, the Stones knew they would be killed if they went to the compound, so they actually stayed in nearby Georgetown, awaiting results from this trip. Now, Jim Jones had been alerted to Congressman Ryan's expected visit, and he had actually spent the weeks leading up to the visit preparing his followers. Jones informed them that God was watching their every move and that they must display that they lived in a utopian society. Members of the congregation knew that if they showed any signs of a complaint, they would be strictly reprimanded as soon as they were out of the reporter's sight. So when members of Congress go on trips, they're called CODELs. It's short for Congressional Delegation. And the reason I bring that up is I'm going to use that term a couple of times. (laughs) So Congressman Ryan and his CODEL, which included various government officials, reporters, and one of his congressional aides, a woman named Jackie Spire, who served as his legal counsel, arrived in Georgetown, Guyana on November 15, 1978. Kath, they had to wait two days for permission from Jim Jones to visit his compound. When it was finally granted, Jones's wife, Marceline, took all of the visitors on a tour of the compound. So that night they were given dinner and there was entertainment. And while this was happening, Congressman Ryan and the other government officials stood in a corner with a list provided by family members and interviewed each of the followers on the list. As the night wore on, one of the reporters received a secret note from one of the congregation's members. The note, written by a man named Vernon Gosney, confirmed all of the rumors about the horrific conditions at Jonestown and said that he wanted to leave. The reporter gave the note to Congressman Ryan, who in turn walked it over and showed it to Jones. Jim Jones, of course, was not happy. But to appease the congressman, Jones announced that all members of his congregation were free to come and go as they please. So Congressman Ryan made a public declaration that any individual who wanted to return to America with him was free to do so. Fourteen followers said they wanted to go. So Congressman Ryan wanted the entire group to leave together because he feared retribution from Jones for anyone that was left behind, but that delayed their leaving because a second plane had to be called in. So the group from the Codell and the People's Temple followers met at the local airstrip on the afternoon of November 18th, and the congressman's aide, Jackie Spire, began loading passengers onto both planes. There was one person that Jackie told the congressman she did not want on their plane. And this was a man named Larry Layton. Layton was one of Jones's top operatives, whose sister Debbie had already defected from Jonestown, and he claimed that he wanted to leave to join his sister. So she put him on the plane that she and the congressman were not going to be on. However, as the group was loading up, a tractor trailer drove onto the airstrip, and people on the tractor trailer started shooting at one of the planes. 
Kath, some of the passengers ran off the plane and just like dashed into the forest and hid there. But Jackie and the congressman hid beside one of the plane's wheels. Now, Layton, who was on the second plane, pulled out a gun and began shooting. Congressman Ryan was killed, the first and only congressman to be assassinated in office. Along with the congressman, three journalists and one People's Temple defector were also killed. One of the men on the tractor trailer radioed Jones to let him know the congressman was dead. Jackie Spire, this was the congressional aide who was Congressman Ryan's legal counsel, Mm -hmm. she was shot five times. She, along with nine others, were left for dead. Now, immediately upon hearing the news of Congressman Ryan's death, Jones began speaking to the congregation over loudspeakers that surrounded the Jonestown complex. Jones was calling for a white night meeting. This was code for an extreme emergency. Now, Kath, the members of Jonestown had done practice runs on white nights before. What would happen is that Jones would shout into the loudspeaker, white night, white night, get to the pavilion, run, your lives are in danger. And everybody followed what he said and ran to their pre-programmed spots. During these practices, he then heightened his followers' sense of danger by telling them how people were coming to murder them. Even worse, Jones had armed men waiting in the jungle who would fire rubber bullets. All of this was a ruse to terrify the people who lived at Jonestown. And during these practice runs, Jones would also give his followers cups of poison, only to reveal later that there was no poison in the cups. However, the white night meeting Jones called that night was not a practice run. He told his followers that Congressman Ryan had been killed, and as a result, the Soviet Union, to whom they planned to turn to for salvation, would no longer offer them any assistance. Jones told the assembled members that America would invariably send in forces to take out the People's Temple, and America would target the weak and torture them. They would torture children, they would rape the women, they would assault the elderly, all of those types of things. The following is a portion of what Jim Jones said to his followers following Congressman Ryan's death. So my opinion is that we be kind to children and be kind to seniors and take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly because we are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. We can't go back. They won't leave us alone. They're now going back to tell more lies, which means more congressmen. And there's no way, no way we can survive. Anyone that has any dissenting opinion, please speak. But if our children are left, we are going to have them butchered. We can make a strike, but we'll be striking against people that we, we don't want to strike against. We want, we'd like to get people who cause this stuff. And some, if some people here are, are prepared to know how to do that, you go in town and get Timothy Stone, but there's no plane. There's no plane. You can't catch a plane in time. He's responsible for it. He brought these people to us. He and Deanna Myrtle. But people in San Francisco will not not be idle over this. And not take our death in vain, you know. It's too late. I can't control these people. They're out there. They've gone with their guns. And it's too late. And once we kill anybody, at least that's the way I've always... I've always put my lot with you. If one of my people do something, it's me. And I say, I don't, I don't have to take the blame for this. But I, I, don't, I don't live that way. I cannot live that way. I've lived with for all, and I'll die for all. 
Jones claimed that the only appropriate way to handle the situation was to commit mass suicide and passed out cups of cyanide-laced grape flavor aid to his followers. Many of the followers thought that this time was just another false alarm. They had experienced other white nights before and did not believe that their death was imminent. However, this time it was real. Jones was not testing anyone's loyalty. He was really leading them into mass suicide. And it turns out, Kath, Jones had been accumulating cyanide along with other various drugs for years in preparation for this moment. The flavor aid was first given to the youngest among them. Parents gave their children cyanide-filled droppers for children who were too young to drink from the cups. And many cats, after realizing they had actually just poisoned their children, lost their will to live and drank the punch. Those who refused to drink the flavor aid were forcibly injected with the concoction. People who tried to escape by running into the surrounding jungle were hunted down and shot by Jones's guards. On that day, November 18, 1978, 914 people lost their lives, 300 of whom were children. Jones, however, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Now, this is the transcription of the last known recording of Jones. Quote, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguished cries. Death is a million times preferable to 10 more days of this life. If we can't live in peace, then let us die in peace. End quote. And he held firm to his belief that they were not committing suicide, but rather engaging in some type of revolutionary act of protest. Now, some of the followers escaped because they were away from camp running errands or playing basketball in a tournament. Kathy had a basketball team that was one of their sort of like few connections to the outside world. And in fact, Jim Jones' son, Stephen Gandhi Jones, was one of the players and the team was playing in Georgetown at the time of this mass suicide. The basketball team heard news about what was happening at the compound and received orders to kill themselves. However, Stephen and the others did not follow the orders. Instead, Stephen drove back to Jonestown, went straight into his house, and when he opened the front door, he was utterly shocked when he saw the dead bodies of the infants. Now, Kath, apparently all the kids that Jim Jones said were his were taken to his house to die. Like a lot of these kids didn't have parents at the compounds to protect them. So this is the scene that Stephen came upon when he got home. And Kath, tragically, Grace and Timothy Stone's son, then six-year-old John, was one of the children in that house. Mm-hmm. So over the years, Stephen Jones has spoken in documentaries about his father and his firsthand experience living in Jonestown. Stephen has said he never grieved his father's death. Instead, he was disgusted that his father did not die in the same fashion as everyone else. He said his father was aware that people outside of Jonestown would see him for what he really was, which was a fraud. And Jones always worked really hard to ensure nobody else realized his true conniving nature and instead only perceived him as a benevolent leader. Jim Jones was not a man of God. He was a narcissist who preyed on the disenfranchised and people who lived on the fringes of society. He was charismatic and was able to ascertain people's fears and insecurities in a heartbeat. This gave him the ability to tell people the message they wanted to hear. In short, he was a predator. Now, Kath Jones's mental health had been deteriorating due to his frequent drug use. 
Although drugs were banned in Jonestown, he made himself the exception to the rule. So yes for me, no for thee. There's some saying like that. Every good despot does that. (laughs) (laughs) So he regularly took amphetamines, quaaludes, and pentobarbital. And Kath's autopsy actually revealed that he had a huge amount of pentobarbital in his system, which should have been lethal had he not already built up such a strong tolerance to the drug. After this tragedy, FBI investigators and other government agencies began putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So as you know, Kath, there was no court record in this. So I actually read the FBI report about this. Mm-hmm. One of the things that came out of the report was that Congressman Ryan's Codell had no military escort and the State Department had not given them a warning or protection about the situation in Guyana. Because of this, today, members of Congress travel with military attaches on all codels. The FBI learned that beginning a decade before the mass suicides, Jones convinced followers to sign over to him their homes, bank accounts, and powers of attorney. And Kathy also convinced some people to just simply sign blank pieces of paper so he could use them later for whatever he wanted to use them for. Anyway, so he also had parents sign false confessions of abusing their children as a way of having something to blackmail them with. He did the same with husbands and wives and basically essentially destroyed the family unit. And I read that he encouraged celibacy in marriages. He promoted adoption. But when somebody actually just got pregnant, they were supposedly shamed for it. And in the same newspaper article I read that in about trying to keep husbands and wives celibate, it also said that he encouraged married couples to sit apart from each other in church because the single people might be envious. The FBI discovered that once in Guyana, Jones began his final phase of gaining complete control of his followers. All of them worked 18 to 20 hours a day, mostly in the fields. They were allowed very little sleep. And he essentially employed the same kind of mind control techniques that cult leaders and dictators are known for. Isolation, sexual, mental, and physical abuse, things like that. Jim Jones Jr., known as Jimmy, spoke with ABC News in 2018 on the 40th anniversary of the Jonestown Massacre. Jimmy was adopted by Jones and Marceline, and as we mentioned, was the first black child adopted by white parents in Indiana. On the ABC News program, Jimmy said his dad never stopped reminding him of that. Jones never introduced Jimmy as my son or even my black son. He was always introduced as my adopted black son. So it looks like in addition to being a mass murderer, uh, Jim Jones was a virtue signaler before it was a thing. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that came out of this, Kath, is that even though what they drank was flavor aid, Mm -hmm. The phrase don't drink the Kool-Aid became part of the public vernacular. Totally. Basically just referring to, hey, don't follow people blindly. Isn't that funny? You're right. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if the people in Jonestown had a big fat Kool-Aid man busting through their (laughs) living room. (laughs) In this case, it busted out of the jungle. (laughs) You know what is so, it's like, who made that commercial? Like, hey, Kool-Aid and this big jug of Kool-Aid comes through your living room wall. Well, (laughs) whoever did it was brilliant because we're still talking about it how many years later. It was like, oh, oh my God, hey, yeah. cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were able to find some accounts of some of the survivors from the Jonestown Massacre. Kath, I know you had the same thought I did, which was they still struggled with what happened. Right. Where do you go from there? Exactly. So Tracy Parks was 12 years old at the time of this massacre. 
and her mother and other family members were shot down by gunmen as they tried to escape through the jungle. Tracy and her 18-year-old sister Brenda hid in the jungle while the other members of Jonestown consumed the cyanide. Brenda said at the age of 51 that, quote, I wish that bullet that got mom had killed me, end quote, because the immense grief and trauma that she and her sister and other survivors had to deal with was insurmountable. Vernon Gosney survived. Now he's the one who gave the note to the reporter. He reported that the loss of his son was the most difficult thing that he had had to live with. He said that he lived with extreme remorse and guilt and frequently replayed in his mind the moment he left his son, just wishing that he could have made a different decision. And he's struggled since then to find any sense of peace or to forgive himself. Gosney actually had a five-year-old son named Mark at Jonestown with him. And when Congressman Ryan came, Gosney planned to leave with the rest of the followers who were part of that and then would come back at another time so that he could get his son Mark. Tragically, Mark was one of the children killed during the massacre. And Gosney was actually shot three times. It was, I think it was twice in the stomach, once in the leg, and had run into the jungle to hide from any of the other troops that were going to come from the compound. In the end, along with helping to unravel the chain of events and bring closure to grieving families, the FBI put together a case against Larry Layton. And the reason the FBI was involved, Kath, is that six years prior to Jonestown, a law had been passed that gave the FBI jurisdiction in the event of a congressional assassination. Larry Layton was the only member of the People's Temple tried in the United States for criminal acts at Jonestown. He was ultimately extradited, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. However, in this case, life turned out to be 18 years. He was paroled in 2002. In addition to Vernon Gosney surviving the attack on the planes, Jackie Spire, Congressman Ryan's legal counsel, also survived. She had been shot five times and along with nine others, had to wait 22 hours for help to arrive. When she got home, she was in the hospital for two months and had to undergo 10 different surgeries. That is crazy. You could be shot five times and survive. That's incredible to me. And she said they all kind of kept each other going through the night and nobody expected to survive the night. Who would expect to be shot and survive 22 hours? And yet nine people did. That's incredible. Yeah. Now, in 2008, Kath, Jackie Spire was elected in a special election to fill the seat of a congressman who had passed away. It was the same district that Congressman Ryan had represented. She became a member of the Intelligence Committee and was given permission to read the secret government files related to Jonestown. She has said in articles that Guyana informed everything she did. It made her into a fighter and to never take no for an answer. And it made her fearless, which she said she probably would not have been had she not had that experience. She said, when you look death in the eye, you are not afraid anymore. Kathy, Congresswoman Spire served for 15 years in Congress before deciding not to run for re-election in November of 2022. Until the September 11th attacks, the Jonestown massacre was the greatest loss of civilian life as the result of a deliberate act in American history. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Uh, okay. You know where to find us. 